Hi, this is Joel Selvin, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. From Variety, David Guetta replicated Eminem's voice in a song using artificial intelligence. From publicknowledge.org, streaming in the dark, where music listeners' money goes and doesn't. From Music Business Worldwide, global recorded music revenues reached $31.2 billion in 2022, but year-over-year growth slowed significantly. And from Billboard, rebuilding the touring industry from scratch, a South by Southwest, South by Southwest 2023 panel recap. All right, Jay, we've got, we've been talking for a half an hour already before we even hit record, but we've got so many things to talk about. And man, I, we got to get going. We got to get going right now, Jay. So let's push the button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Right, Jay, man, so good to see you on a Sunday as we record today, and we've been going over the things we're going to talk about, and man, oh man, oh man, and your arms are tired because you got back from Southwest, from South by Southwest, and yeah, what a busy week, busy week, yeah, crazy week, and this week, um, these stories, it's like an embarrassment of riches. There is so much going on in the music industry. Um, this week, we're going to co- cover this really cool report from publicknowledge.org. Um, music Business Worldwide dropped some information on the global music business just mm-hmm. in front of the IFPI report that you and I have been talking about. And last week, we covered the RIAA report, which, of course, is U.S. IFPI is global. And so is this report uh, from Music Business Worldwide. Lots of great stuff to cover. Oh, yeah, I can hardly wait. And of course, you know, this this week we had some passings. Uh, what mm. I wanted to actually mention, and as and I'll tell you why I'm mentioning them, although as far as I know, both of the artists that we lost this week did not know each other. They're roughly the same age. Uh, Bobby Caldwell, of course, had this great song that we're playing right now, which you won't do for love. Uh, but the reason that Merc, Mercuriatus's words are echoing in my ear when I was reading some of the obituaries is mm-hmm. how important those songs were and continue to be important. Uh, what You Won't Do For Love came out in, back in 78. It was a big hit then, but it's been since then. It's been recorded by Natalie Cole, Roy Ayers, Phyllis Hyman, Go West, Victor Wooten, Michael Bolton, Boys to Men, also importantly sampled on the Tupac, uh, Tupac Shakur track, Do For Love, back in 98. These songs, yeah. Jay, they just keep going and going and going the importance of songs and that was such a great song and then uh the drummer jim gordon passed away a very tragic Mm, figure yeah uh we had joel selvin do our intro and 
Uh, Joel has a book coming out on Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon was a member of the original Wrecking Crew uh, back in the day. He played on a ton of albums. He's on Pet Sounds, a lot of albums. He, was, of course, was in Mad Dogs and Englishmen. He was on that tour with Joe Cocker. Uh, he co-wrote Layla, the piano break at the end, which he stole from his then-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge. But the reason that I'm talking about him today, too, and I didn't know this until I read his obituary, is... He played on this very odd sort of pretend band called the Incredible Bongo Band. And they did a cover of a song called Apache back in 1973, which we're playing right now. But that drum break with bongo drums became the literally the most foundational hip-hop sample ever done on more than 750 right. songs. Uh, and of course, they had a whole documentary about it called Sample This. And uh, that was Jim Gordon playing on that. But Jim, of course, tragically killed his mom and was in a mental institution for the remainder of his life. Tragic story, but uh, Joel's book, I'm sure, will be fascinating. But anyway, uh, the power of the song, Jay. You know, these guys did songs and played on songs that we're still talking about and still making money. Well, amazing yeah. stuff. So, uh, well, let's, amazing, let's kind of, amazing. Let's start stuff. going in, into our, our our stories, Jay. Oh, we have we have so much to talk about today. We'll we'll just jump right in. But mm-hmm. before we do um, get into the stories, anyway, um, last week uh, we did a deep dive on Spotify's recent stream on announcements. We did uh, lots of talk in the news last week, and and I want to touch on something that Tim Ingham from Music Business Worldwide brought up on his Talking Trends podcast last week. He identified something uh, that much I think the music industry press may have missed, and that is, you know, from the CMA, that's the UK uh, Competition and Markets Authority. Um, it's a it's a competition watchdog that actually has teeth uh, in the UK. They asked major music streaming platforms for data surrounding how users listen to the music on their platforms. The report concluded that only about 10 to 20% of Spotify's plays, and that's in the UK anyway, uh, were from their own algatorial playlist. And of course, algatorial, that's a mashup of algorithmic and editorial, right? So in other words, tracks pushed by algorithmic recommendations based on user preferences versus over 50% of those plays coming from user curated pl- playlists, 10 to 20% of plays that weren't from any playlist at all. Wow. So that means that 60 to 80% of Spotify plays are not associated with Spotify's recommendations. Right. You may ask, so why is that such an important stat? Well, the case for Spotify's differentiation in the market is almost entirely predicated on its algorithmic recommendations. Spotify, as you know, has the same 100 million or so tracks that Apple Music, Amazon Music, YouTube Music has. Uh, And of course, since Spotify purchased Echo Nest back in 2015, they have continually made the argument that its recommendation engine is the most sophisticated and knowing of its customer base in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, supports their position as a market leader. Ah, yes, but (laughs) that doesn't mean if less than one-fifth of the plays on Spotify are influenced by their algorithm. That means that four-fifths are chosen by users and influenced off-platform. So great job with uh, Tim Ingham, as always. I don't know if he's actually human. I've never heard him make a mistake. He's just like perfect. Um, maybe Tim Ingham is AI. Um, but I love his podcast. I never miss an episode and we're actually covering a story this week from, uh, music business, uh, worldwide. But, uh, the first story that we're talking about today has got, uh, a lot of people talking. Um, and it was yes. from variety. Um, and, uh, David Guetta, you know, the EDM artist, he replicated Eminem's voice, um, in a song, and uh, he did it using artificial intelligence, AI. Oh and it really sounds amazing. If nobody had told me, I would have thought that that was Eminem. Of course. Now, of course, in the past year, one of the hottest topics in the music industry has been the use of AI or artificial intelligence in creating music. There was a piece in Variety last week written by Thania, is it Tania? Tania Garcia or Thania Garcia? I'm going to go with Tania Garcia. Uh, With the headline, David Guetta replicated Eminem's voice in a song using artificial intelligence. 
right? You know, Geta recently shared a video of himself playing a song during one of his sets that used the AI technology to create a song in the style of Eminem. And he explains how he did it. In the audio we're about to play for you, Geta is heard hyping up this massive crowd with an unreleased track featuring a replica of Eminem's voice. The AI voice is heard saying, the future uh, no, this is the future of rave sound. I'm getting awesome and underground. Let's take a listen. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting awesome and underground. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting awesome and underground. This Eminem, bro. There's something that I made as a joke, and it works so good, I could not believe it. I discovered any artist you like. So I typed, write a verse in the style of Eminem about future rave. And I went to another AI website that can recreate the, vo the voice. I put the text in that and I played the record and people went nuts. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. In the responses to the video, Geta made sure to clarify that he would obviously not be commercially distributing the song, a debate that was almost immediately sparked in the comments of that original video. Uh, throughout the past few months, more AI-generated content has gone viral on platforms like TikTok. Fans have been taking already existing songs and using AI software to make them sound like another artist is singing them. With the voices mm. from of some of the most recognizable artists like Bad Bunny, Ariana Grande, and Billie Eilish being replicated. Last month, uh, music generator site Drake IT and Drake is spelled D R A Y K uh, dot IT. Um, this site made headlines for its ability to create AI Drake songs. Uh, the viral platform ran for a short period of time, and but now. It, doesn't exist, uh, likely due to legal issues attached to using the artist image uh, without consent. Um, some artists have already expressed their disapproval of the technology uh, through conversations and debates that are, are still developing. And you and I have covered this in the past and we've talked about it, but it's starting to heat up and it's moving pretty quickly now where you can go in and I did it just to see if I could do it. You go into your, it could be chat GPT. It could be your AI text, uh, of, you know, of choice. And you say, uh, write me, a, a song or write me a chorus or a verse in the style of a particular artist. And sometimes it's, it's silly. Like I did one and it wasn't even close, but I did another one that looked exactly like what that artist <laughs> would have written. And then there's all sorts of software uh, programs out there where they'll create melodies. And I think the one that David Guetta used, if I'm not mistaken, he used chat GPT to generate the lyric, um, and then used a, a platform called Uber duck to create, uh, the music behind it. Um, or no, not the music behind it. He used ChatGPT for the text, and then he used UberDuck to replicate Eminem's voice. That's what it was. Oh, my God. The future is here, to say the least. Uh, it is absolutely crazy. And, and I think we mentioned, was it last week or the week before, you know, there are moves afoot to figure out how do you copyright something like that? And what do you do? What, what are the elements that need to be non-AI generated, i.e. more human generated? How much of that needs to be, you know, because you can sort of start the process, right? You, or, and, I mean, I, the, the, you know, as somebody who's kind of, you know, dabbled in songwriting, one of the advantages to me of that is not necessarily to do something completely creative, but when you get stuck, when you bump into something like a chord progression right. or, a, or a lyric that you want a little help with, you know, you know, to, to, you know, suggestions or something like that. So right. as we move forward, how will these things be copyrighted? Can they be copyrighted? How much human uh, interaction can be, you know, uh, noted or documented right. in terms of the, of, of, of the process? It's, it's so many yeah. things to consider. We're talking about two different things here, though. We're talking about there, there are platforms like Lyric Studio, mm -hmm. so you can put in the lyrics that you've written, and it'll help you finish your song, and they're coming out with a new version. Of, it's called a Melody Studio, where you can do that with music. And, you know, to use AI to help your creative process, 
That's one thing. Yes. But there's a couple of other things. One is you and I covered a story a couple of weeks ago where um, if, if there's a song that's being generated by AI, and I'm not talking about something in the style of somebody else, but just a, a song that's created lyrics, music, uh, using completely AI and no human, then that's not copyrightable today, mm-hmm. according to the right. piece that we covered. But then it gets really tricky when, well, if I'm writing a song in the style of Eminem, it's clearly drawing from his work in the past. And that, I, I'm no lawyer, um, but would mean that you would have to you know, there would have to be some type of publishing uh, associated with that. And I'll, I'll leave our audience with this. Um, you and I are actively right now uh, reaching out to our friends that are music industry attorneys, and we're going to see if we can get uh, someone on to uh, give us some clarity in this whole field. And Jay, I was enjoying getting texts from you this week from things that were happening at South by Southwest. I'm going to guess that you had a really good time there. Yeah, it was a good week. Um, South by Southwest, um, it's just phenomenal because it covers, you know, film, TV, music, uh, sports, all sorts of things. Um, but uh, I got to spend some time with uh, a lot of great people. Um, I was traveling with uh, Scott Pappas. Um, I got to have uh, breakfast with Larry Miller from NYU. It was fantastic. You know, Larry Matera. There were a couple of cool events. Uh, Symphonic had a mixer and, you know, uh, special shout out to Jorge and Randall and Jeanette and Michael and that great team over there. Um, Music Tectonics had a really cool uh, mixer. Um, got to hang out with uh, Vasya Weber from Vibrate and Kristen Grant um, and uh, Dick uh, Wingate and a whole bunch of other great people. But some of the panels were just phenomenal. And I'll just mention a couple of them. Um, one was called the streaming debate lessons from abroad. Um, and Tom gray from Ivers Academy was, uh, the moderator there, but our friend Garrett Levin from Dima was on that with Amy Thompson from hypnosis, who I got to uh, say hi to really quickly. Autumn Rose, who is a songwriter. Amazing, uh, uh, amazing uh, conversation. I'm sort of waiting for Music Ally. Um, typically, they cover these conferences and then do uh, kind of recaps of the panels. I'm hoping that they're going to do something like that this year. The other one I wanted to mention really quickly is the impact of GDPR for music rights holders. And uh, GDPR, if you don't know, is General Data Protection Regulation. So the impact of GDPR on music rights holders. And that was with Sharon Tapper from Artist Managers Forum in the U.S., Kristen Grant, who I just mentioned, Vasya Weber uh, from Vibrate, and uh, Nizam uh, Hoffman from FXR. And just a quick honorable mention, um, you and I were talking about a story we read in Billboard this last week that was basically kind of a recap of a panel. And I didn't see the panel, but I read the article. Um, it was called Rebuilding the Touring Industry from Scratch. And that was moderated by Billboard's Taylor uh, Mims, featuring panelist Sarah uh, Mertz. She's the VP of uh, Music Partnerships at uh, Tixar. Um, Liz Norris, who's a manager and uh, activist uh, artist management with activist artist management. That's easy for you to say. And, uh, Sarah Tarani, uh, who's a music touring agent at WME. Um, but, uh, that was, uh, that was a really interesting panel and really interesting article. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about it again. So this again was the rebuilding the touring industry from scratch. And this is a, a panel recap that Billboard did. And it says the panel discussed the touring industry's post-pandemic status. And a few highlights. Uh, Sarah Tarani, she is, of course, as you mentioned, over at WME. She said, rather than these big throw everything at the wall and see what sticks festivals... <laughs> that are focused on going and discovering new music, we're seeing more interest in boutique festivals. Uh, some artists Tarani works with, like R&B singer-songwriter Umi, have uh, eventrified, that's a, another sort of interesting word, eventrified incorporating new elements to make their tours stand out, like adding a, um, a meditation practice offered as a VIP experience at her shows to boost fan engagement and spread her passion for wellness. Mm-hmm. Such experiences are becoming more crucial as the cost of touring continues to rise with inflation and as a result of cutbacks on positions like bus drivers and sound engineers, leaving consumers to be pickier about which shows they attend. Yeah, but still this this strategy is challenged by a high no-show rate. 
Um, attrition remains an issue, said Sarah Mertz. You know, she's the one from Tixar. She said, I don't know what it is. I was just meeting with a, a couple of clients last week and they're like, we don't understand it. At our sold out shows, still 20 to 25% of people are not showing up. Why? Um, having a, a therapist and a physical therapist on the road is new. She had, well, no, this was uh, Sarah Tarani who said that. Um, we, we've also had vocal coaches and stuff like that, but people are definitely thinking about how to take better care of each other. And that's a very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. But the whole thing about uh, no-shows, that was really weird and interesting to, to make that comment. Um, and I've kind of noticed that at some of the concerts I've been to that, you know, it, when you were looking for tickets, there was almost nothing available. And then you go and, yeah, there's just a ton of empty seats. And I think they were kind of attributing that to a lot of the scalpers and how that's really kind of increased. But uh Gosh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're doing the same thing. There's so many amazing shows that are going to be out on yeah. the road this summer. And it's yeah. really hard to choose. I mean, I had, I don't, I wish I had far more money than I do because I would love to see a lot of these, but I've, you have to make tough decisions about what to go to and what yeah. to spend your money on because there are so many choices. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, there you have it. Well, let's jump into uh, our number two one, Jay. This is so interesting. This is from publicknowledge.org. Mm-hmm. This is a, Big wonder, and you know we've talked in the past about things that you must download and print and have in a little file folder of really just fantastic information. And this is yeah, one for of sure. Those. Yeah, streaming I definitely printed dark. this thing out. Yeah, go ahead. Me too. Me too. Uh, streaming in the dark, where music listeners' money goes and doesn't. Right, oh, and this was by Meredith Rose. Uh, she's senior mm-hmm. policy counsel at publicknowledge.org, where she focuses on copyright, DMCA, intellectual property reform, government issues, et cetera. A fantastic uh, job. Um, but it's, it's a big report. It's a long report. And we're basically only going to cover the, the summary and then a, a section called where's all the money going. But I, I highly encourage our readers and listeners to download this report. It's in your morning coffee. Um, it is fantastic. So let's talk about the executive summary. This paper, it really proceeds from what might be the only universal point of agreement in all of music policy. And that is that the streaming marketplace is fundamentally broken. Consumers are pouring more than $12 billion a year into music streaming services. From there, it enters a dark labyrinth economy shaped by centuries old laws and unchecked market power. When that money emerges out of the other side and reaches artists, it's been reduced to fractions of pennies. Right. She goes on to say, our ability to, to scrutinize that black box has been methodically and strategically hampered by the use of non-disclosure agreements. Of course, NDAs is the acronym for that. On its face, we don't know much about what happens to that money. But what we do know is disconcerting and what can uh, what, and what can reverse engineer is outright alarming. What we can reverse engineer, I should say. The streaming and music industries are both breeding grounds for anti-competitive behavior. Astronomical licensing costs have squeezed the streaming market and created a world where music streaming is treated as a loss leader for the world's wealthiest tech companies. Licensing deals are riddled with payola and other kickbacks which maximize wealth for major labels while minimizing how much they have to pay out to artists. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, power middlemen, as they put it, control choke points within the music industry. Major labels and superstar talent claim the overwhelming majority of the financial pie, leaving small and independent artists and the labels to pick up the scraps. And they do this under strict secrecy, keeping effective change and accountability at arm's length. Right. And Meredith says, if we can agree to that, if we can agree that the system is broken, then we can also argue there must be a way forward. At a minimum, the Federal Trade Commission must pierce the NDA curtain 
to study this marketplace and determine just how bad things are and where. Mm. From there, the question becomes one of not whether major reforms should follow, but which ones. Lawmakers have a vast array of tools at their disposal, from antitrust laws to fair dealing mandates to app store regulation to whistleblower protections. No one, not one of these, is going to work on its own. Cleaning up the mess is going to take a little bit of everything. So that's the uh, executive summary. Let's dig mm-hmm. into um, the section, where is all the money going? All right. So customers, as you just mentioned, you know, they're paying stream- streaming services $12 billion on this last year. Uh, this is one of the few pieces of the puzzle where there's, you know, a concrete public number, you know, consumers spend that $12 billion um, on streaming, right? Okay, so Music Watch's consumer study estimates that consumers spend an average of $98 per person uh, each year on recorded music across all formats, $98. However, limitations in the data suggest that the overall number may be substantially higher. While that's below the 1999 peak of $23.7 billion, adjusted for inflation, of course, it's also up from 2014 uh, when it hit bottom at $7.7 billion. Right. So talking about subscription pricing, most streaming services offer multiple tiers, of course, of paid subscriptions, from bare-bones ad-free options to multi-user family plans or plans offering HD sound quality. Standard individual plans range from $4.99 to $10.99 a month, with deluxe plans in the $15.99 to $19.99 a month range. Although we have some data on the effect of price changes on consumer preferences and the context of physical music, public data on how pricing affects consumer streaming behavior is limited. Mm. Many streaming services also offer an ad-supported or freemium option. These bring in substantially less revenue, primarily through advertising and or collection of consumer data, and pay lower per-stream rates to rights holders. Right. And as we're looking at these payouts, there's one I hadn't really thought about. And that's, you know, if you purchase through an app store, you know, and and those payment uh, processors, right? Everybody's kind of Mm -hmm. taken a little bite of this all along the chain. So, you know, for services with mobile apps, the app stores can also take a slice. Generally, app stores take between 15 and 30 percent of in-app purchases, Uh, and subscriptions. Uh, The amount has long been a sticking point uh, within the app industry, but until early 2022, the Apple Music, well, the Apple App Store uh, forbade apps from including outside links to web-based signups. This meant that app developers who wanted to offer subscriptions had to do it either in the app, suggesting the subscription fee to Apple's 30% cut or hope their customers independently found their way to the service's web-based sign-up. The policy was quietly adjusted in early 2022 to allow certain app developers, such as Spotify and Netflix, to request, but not guarantee, the right to point subscribers to web-based sign-up forms. Interesting. Uh, For a time, a Spotify uh, premium subscription purchased on the web cost $9.99, while the same subscription purchased through the iOS app was uh, was priced at twelve ninety nine to camp to compensate for Apple's fees, and this is in parentheses now. It says Spotify has since discontinued the option to purchase subscriptions through the iOS app altogether. For subscriptions managed outside of an app store, payment processors such as Visa, Mastercard, and PayPal also take a slice off of subscription fees. However, mm. these numbers appear to be comparatively small, between one to four percent with high-volume services at the lower range. So if we assume around 1.5%, that would shave off roughly $180 million from the total pot. That means that approximately $11... I'm sorry, that... That means that approximately $11.82 billion makes it into the hands of the DSPs. This number keeps getting whittled down further and further. (laughs) Yes, it does. So the other part of this, where's all the money going? Um, Let's take a look at the payments to rights holders. And you and I make that clear a lot because when you hear somebody complain that a DSP like Spotify or Apple Music um, isn't paying the artists enough, that's because typically they don't pay the artist unless the artist is the rights holder. It's usually, you know, the distributor and, and of course, the uh, record label. And that is uh, of that pie, that's $8.28 billion. 
But, as the report says, thanks to the pervasive NDA, non-disclosure agreement, culture around music, streaming deals, public data on the cost, volume, and contours of DSP licensing agreements is nearly non-existent. What we have instead are aggregate estimates. And the CMA inquiry revealed that, you know, of that $12 billion of consumer money spent on streaming, approximately $8.28 billion or 69% transfers through to the rights holders. And that's something we've talked about uh, a lot on this podcast is that the way that breaks down roughly is 70% goes to the rights holders and 30% stays with the DSP. And that's the industry thinks that's fair. And that's really what iTunes was doing uh, when downloads were the major configuration. Right, right. So when you're talking about what DSPs keep, how much do services keep for themselves? There are no comprehensive public numbers, but again, we can again rely on the averages put forward by the parliamentary report and confirmed by estimates published by DEMA. DSP's pocket, as you were saying, Jay, about 31% of consumer dollars or about $3.72 billion. Notably, a broad sampling of industry stakeholders agreed that it was basically reasonable for that, but, you know, basically, but you know, we're also talking kind of on the... Uh, before we hit record about, you know, just their, their infrastructure and their, their rents and everything. There's a lot going on of what DSPs, they have lovely offices and they've got a lot yeah. of overhead. It's, it's expensive to run businesses these days and they live pretty large when you're talking rents and, and employee salaries. 100%. And, and so despite that impressive number that you just recited, um, streaming services are notoriously unprofitable. Spotify has famously never managed uh, an annual profit despite one quarterly success, I think in 2018 and an encore performance in Q3 of 2019. Um, and then Deezer, um, w- which was founded in 2007, earned praise for its ambitious uh, goal of setting 2025 as a target date for profitability. The financials for Tidal, which was purchased by fintech uh, firm Blah back, uh, let's see, uh, Block back in 2021. Um, you know, these are obfuscated uh, under the firm's public reporting. The the finances of services such as Apple Music, Amazon, and YouTube. Music, they're not generally broken out from their parent companies in public reporting. So, profit is, of course, uh, not only the only measure of success, it is, however, salient and apparently elusive one. Elusive. Sure. Uh, the move to digital distribution has allowed labels to eliminate many of the costs incurred, obviously, by physical distribution, which also off, while also offloading their financial risk to DSPs. Traditional costs that fall to the record labels with physical distribution, such as manufacturing, storing and transporting the product, or for breakage or returns, do not apply for streaming, of course. Instead, the Internet has simultaneously allowed for frictionless transfer of assets from the label to the service. Concurrently, the costs incurred by digital distribution have been transferred to and are borne by the streaming service. Mm. So who else takes a piece? Uh, the answer is what the report calls rights holder middlemen. And it's difficult, again, to get exact figures due to secrecy and NDAs, those non-disclosure agreements. Um, most of what we know about licensing agreements is via secondhand sources and leaks. Uh, Most licensing contracts are bound by NDAs. That means that details like rates, uh, non-cash payments, and beneficiaries of each are obscured from both the public and often the artists from whom record companies claim to advocate. So let's talk about the rights holder Minutemen. The most obvious ones are distributors and aggregators. Uh, We also talk about CRMs, collective rights management. These nonprofit organizations are responsible for licensing, tracking, and collecting publishing royalties earned, and then paying them out to the respective songwriters and or publishers. Right. And other uh, rights holder middlemen that they they point out are PROs, uh, performing rights organizations, like in the U.S., ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, GMR. You know, each of these have songwriter members and publisher members. While a songwriter can sign with one PRO, a publisher can split its catalog among, you know, uh, around multiple uh, PROs. 
Right. And of course, songwriters may also be represented by the mechanical rights organization, the MROs, getting out your uh, decoder, your acronym decoder ring. The primary MRO is the Mechanical Licensing Collective, which was established in 2018 by the Music Modernization Act and granted the ability to issue blanket mechanical licenses for all compositions, even when the rights holder is currently unknown. The bottom line here is a lack of transparency. One survey found that more than half of music managers did not know the share arrangement between DSPs and their label. Two-thirds did not know the agreed minimum payments for their own artists. Yeah, and and the report also talks about what it calls payola. Now, I'm not mm. necessarily you know big on that term because that implies pay for play on... Uh, our airwaves, like with radio, that's not mm-hmm. disclosed because, as you know, if you disclose that you know you're playing this song on the radio um, and it's been paid for, that's not illegal. It becomes illegal when you don't um, tell people that it was paid for. Right. And since streaming isn't on public airwaves, you know this this doesn't quite uh, measure up to payola, but we'll we'll go through it. It says uh, licensing deals between DSPs and major rights holders typically include kickbacks and other non-cash payments. Labels have uh, leveraged their catalog to secure equity stakes, algorithmic amplification of preferred artists, user demographic and consumption data, and advertising discounts. The aggregate result is that major rights holders negotiate for and secure numerous invisible forms of compensation that influence both the streaming service and the label's payment to their own artists. Right. So researchers had discovered that songs from major labels, in this is in quotation, or in quotes, feature on popular Spotify playlists at a disproportionately higher rate than independent songs and are overrepresented in the recommendation process, with Universal's and Warner's overrepresentation even being further amplified over iterations of a recommendation engine. This is likely due to the degree of leverage majors possess over the service. Yeah. Although the avenues and players, they, they've shifted over the years, but the core idea remains unchanged, and that is the undisclosed payment or acceptance of payment in cash or kind for promotion of a song, album, or artist. You know, that's what they're calling uh, payola, and you'll note that it says mm-hmm. the undisclosed payment, right? So how do we fix yeah. it? The, the music industry is addicted to secrecy. Secrecy is powerful. It entrenches market power allows blame shifting and presents artists from effectively demanding better treatment. Most importantly, secrecy allows those with the most information, which is labels and DSPs to substitute public relations wars and finger pointing for actual reform. Right. This report goes on to say the federal trade commission has a crucial role to play in all this. That role begins with the commission of a study under its Section 6B authority. Uh, the, sh- the study should investigate industry practices related to streaming more broadly, but should focus specifically on the following. Number one, non-cash compensation in DSP distributor agreements, which they were again referring to as payola. Uh, number two, its impact on artist payments, a.k.a. the black box. Number three, streaming advances and breakage. Number four, concentration among record companies, including whether their distributors have the incentive and ability to self-preference in contracts with DSPs and whether previous mergers should be unwound. And number five, the prevalence and impact of NDAs NDAs agreements in artist contracts. No meaningful change, they say, can come without lifting the NDA curtain. Wow. I mean, this this report is absolutely... Uh, mind-blowing as you go through it. And we're just scratching the surface of it. Again, it's in your morning coffee. It's called Streaming in the Dark, Where Music Listeners' Money Goes and Doesn't uh, by Meredith Rose. Um, uh, She's from publicknowledge.org. Fantastic job to Meredith and her team. Um, That's one of those reports you're going to want to print and uh, highlight and keep on hand. There's a lot of great information in there. 
and read and read again. Um, but you know, it, it makes me think back to the report we we talked about, or the 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 um, the issue with uh, Universal Music and Tidal yeah. wanting to kind of reimagine what a streaming system can look like. Uh, but when you read this report and you think about all of these things, again, whether you agree or disagree with the things we were talking about, it just certainly goes to show you that there are so many issues and so many things to consider when you theoretically yeah. are going to kind of reimagine what this should look like to be a, a more fair process. Right. There's just tons of things in there. And as, as this points out, this article, this report that, uh, so many things are opaque, you know, it's like, you know, you're, we're, we're making sort of guesstimates on what's yeah. going on behind that curtain, but we don't really know. Could right. be better, could be worse. And, uh, it's a gigantic job to, yeah. to and it's a call and, for transparency. So yeah. Yes. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, wow. I love that. And let's go on to our next one, Jay, our next story we're going to talk about, which is uh, from music business worldwide, global recorded music revenues reached $31.2 billion in 2022, but year-over-year growth slowed, as they say, significantly. Yeah, and this is by Murray Stassen, Music Business Worldwide. Again, one of our favorite sources. They're, they're so great. And one of the things that we were talking about last week as we covered the RIAA, that's the U.S., uh, snapshot of the music business um, every six months. Uh, they re- release that report. And on the worldwide uh, level, it's the IFPI report. And that's coming out in a few days, and I'm sure we'll cover it next week uh, on the podcast. But music business worldwide, um, they do their own uh, math and their own estimates. And it's it's usually pretty in line you know, with IFPI. So we're getting kind of a sneak peek of really what's uh, what's coming uh, in that report. But according to uh, Music Business Worldwide's report, again, published last week, global recorded music revenues grew 6.7% year over year. And, and that's to reach 31.2 billion. And remember what uh, Glenn People said last week that we talked about is that we're used to these double digit growth numbers. So when mm-hmm. you see 6.7%, even though that's very positive, it's not what we've um, been expecting or, you know, so media notes that its estimates come a few days ahead of the release of the IFPI's, you know, annual global music report. So that 6.7% growth estimate for 2022 is also significantly down on IFPI's own growth figure for 2021, which it reported in March of last year to be an increase of 18.5% versus 2020. Uh, Media Managing Director Mark Mulligan, overall market growth was down in 2022 compared to 2021. 2021 was in many respects a year of artificially accentuated post-COVID growth, while 2022 was at the opposite, (laughs) not today (laughs) apparently, Uh, while 2022 was at the opposite end of the scale with a host of economic headwinds. He added in this context, 6.7% growth for 2022 could be considered even more of an achievement than the 24.8% achieved back in 2021. Interesting. He also noted that 2022 was a year of realignment for much of the global economy and that the music business had to contend not only with a wider trend of cost of living crisis, but also rising interest rates, you know, softening music catalog, mergers and acquisitions, you know, that demand and the long expected streaming slowdown kicking in. However, He said that the global recorded music industry's modest growth in 2022 is a testament to the solidity of the recorded music market that despite these multiple headwinds. Indeed, he uh, Mulligan uh, notes further that the persistent value of music was even more strongly illustrated by music publishing, which media, media estimates grew by 16.6% year over year in 2022. As is to be expected, streaming was again the primary driver of global of global record industry growth with revenues estimated by media to have grown 8.3% year over year or by 1.5 billion to 20 billion dollars in 2022. Yeah, Midia pins this declaration on slowing paid subscription growth in mature markets and a slowdown in ad-supported revenues, which it says reflects a wider advertising market dynamics. 
Music subscriber growth was markedly stronger, according to Media, which it estimates was up by 13.7% uh, to $652 million globally. Right. It notes, however, that the most mature North American and European regions accounted for just a third of global annual subscriber growth. Uh, Mark goes on to say emerging markets will become a progressively larger part of global streaming growth. But due to lower ARPU and low shares of Anglo repertoire, the divergence between growth revenue and subscriber growth rate seen in 2022 will become a long term market characteristic. Yeah, oh, this is just such a fantastic report. They go on to say that overall streaming accounted for 64.1% of recorded music industry revenues worldwide in 2022. Um, what they don't point out is that when we covered the media, or I'm sorry, the uh, RIAA report is that in the US, it's 84% of the business. So 64% globally. 84% in the U.S. Um, Media breaks out its estimates for major record company revenues, uh, and it, they report that the Universal Music Group added more annual recorded music revenue in 2022 than the other two majors, uh, Sony Music Group and Warner Group, Warner Music Group. Right. So our, both of our former employer, UMG, grew its annual recorded music revenue by half a billion dollars in 2022 to reach $9.2 billion, says Midia, giving Universal a 29.5% share of the global recorded music market. According to Midia's estimates, UMG's year-over-year revenue growth in percentage terms, which is up 6.2% in 2022, was slower than Sony Music Group's at 8.7% up, uh, with Sony Music Group gaining an estimated 0.4%, uh, I'm sorry, 0.4 points of global market share. Interesting. You know, also in this report, Midia estimates um, that independent labels and artists direct um, AKA uh, do it yourself artists, you know, they both strongly outperform the wider streaming market. So independent labels, indie artists are outperforming the wider streaming market. The two sectors grew year over year streaming revenues by almost 14% and 18% respectively. Yeah. So again, these artists, these artists direct who release without labels uh, directly via distributor, according to media, were the big success story once again with their revenues growing, as you mentioned, Jay, by about 17 percent year over year in 2022 to generate one point seven eight billion dollars of recorded music revenue that gave the artist direct segment a five point seven percent global market share, says media, up from five point two percent back in 2021. Interesting. You know, independent labels also outgrew the wider market, says Midia, increasing their recorded music revenues by about 7% year over year. And it's important to note that Midia clarifies that independent labels, in its estimates, do not include revenue generated by those indie uh, labels that are distributed by major record companies. So this revenue is instead included under the major's revenue. So fantastic report. Uh, from uh, Mark Mulligan and his team over at Midia. Um, and uh, I love the recap from Murray Stassen over at Music Business Worldwide. Um, it, there's a lot of uh, positivity, a lot of things to take out of that, especially on the indie music and uh, indie yeah, artist side. Yeah, that was really yeah. interesting, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, and, and to see UMG's dominance too, you know, boy, they're just killing it over there. So it's... All of these things are so interesting. And, and, you know, again, the thing that we keep talking about, the most dramatic change in what everything streaming has brought to the table in terms of the business of music is a predictable revenue stream. And, yeah. you know, we still haven't reached that 1999 number just yet. But, boy, the, the, the just dramatic changes that that particular thing has made has just it dominates everything we talk about still, you know, when you talk right. about the acquisition of catalogs and all of that, and it's all down to streaming revenue being consistent and yeah. all of these, you know, it just, it, it's, it's hard to even remember almost what it was like, you know, hustling things out for Christmas release. And it just, it's just, Q4. that's not a part of the business anymore. Yeah. No, it, absolutely. It's, Q4. it's a totally different business and it's, it's just moving so fast 
And in this episode uh, of the podcast, we're talking about some things that really relate to each other. Like with AI moving as fast as it's moving right now, it reminds me of, you know, when downloads happen and then when streaming happened, it's the, Mm -hmm. the technology is, is unstoppable. And it's just taking the industry a moment to catch up to that. And I love reading these numbers uh, from media But also, you know, as we dig into that report from publicknowledge.org, we realize there's a lot that needs to be done because there's record profits being made. And now we have to, you know, start from scratch and really get some transparency into the economics of where where the dollars go uh, for all of this. So everybody's paid uh, fairly. Right. But boy, considering all of those things that they were bringing up, all of those issues in that report, uh, you know, reworking this is going to be such a gigantic headache, to be honest. I mean, it it has to be done. But man, I don't know if I want to be sitting at that table because there's so many things to consider, so many different buckets that have to be realigned in a different way to make it more fair and boy you know that and how do you get rid of ndas and how do you pierce that veil i i don't know i you know can you even do that i mean those those are legal documents yeah well they say where there's a will there's a way right in their report they definitely say there is a way uh, legally. And it's, it's through the government, you know, it's through a committee yeah. that can look into those things and just uh, make sure that um, we know what's happening. Cause right now the, you know, they talked about it in the report. Managers don't even know what's going on with their artists no. and how the payment flows. So, and of course the artists don't it as well. A, still a very opaque system. Uh, but, you know, as we wrap up this uh, this edition of the podcast, Jay, we would be remiss if we didn't thank our sponsors because they do it every time for us, uh, including HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. With help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Ah, yes, Bands in Town. Over 74 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it's the number one artist services platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans managers labels agencies and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms Yes, and we are also sponsored by the Music Business Association. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us and them for the Music Business Conference in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th. So big thanks to the Music Business Association, Banzugo Hypebot, and Bands in Town. And on that note, Jay, let us wrap up this edition of the podcast. We do want to thank everyone for listening in. Boy, there was a lot of numbers spewed about today, but it's <laughs> fascinating, and uh, the the business con- continues to be healthy. Let's just leave it at that. That's probably a good summation. And so, on that note, we appreciate you listening in, and we'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.